It's, uh, I'm excited this morning. I'm excited because I, I like this time of year. We've just kind of got back into routine. Things are beginning to, to take some, some semblance of, of, of normality after the, the disruption of the summer. And I'm excited this week for two reasons. Firstly, firstly, and I know you'll share this, on Tuesday, our senior minister Ian is back. Yay. Excellent, good, yeah. But that's good, because whenever he comes back from holiday, he has more bounce than Tigger, and he'll come in and he'll say, God's told me we need to do this, needs to do this, needs to do this, to get, at least get better at doing this, put more work into this, more energy, come on. And honestly, it's, it's, like, it's like a boost, it's great. So I'm quite excited about that, because that's, 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 that's infectious. That rubs off on people around us when we have that sort of attitude. So that's, that's one thing. And another thing I'm excited about is that Gary's starting Spurgeon's proper this week. He sort of he had orientation week, which is fresh... Uh, Spurgeon's words for uh, Freshers' Week. Um, But he had that last week, and this week, lectures start. So the real work. So I'm looking forward to seeing Gary going through that. (laughs) His time has come. But that's going to be really good as well, because although it'll be be good fun, um, talking about the different lecturers that he meets and the different lectures he goes to and and going through all the stuff that he he hears, I'm, I'm looking forward to discussing it. It's exciting times. A knock-on of Gary being at Spurgeon's is that I'm going to have an opportunity to get involved with some of the youth work. I love working with young people, and I'm really looking forward to this opportunity in the next few months, and hopefully over the next three years as Gary goes through his course. This week, the youth leader shared with me a list of questions and topics which the youth have produced, things they would like teaching on. And they go from the sublime to the ridiculous. We probably won't spend too much time addressing the question of why does Adam, uh, did Adam have a belly button? Or um, do penguins have knees? Probably not going to spend too much time on that. But there are some absolute humdingers in there. From a Christian perspective, should Boris Johnson be leading our country? Ooh, ooh. We wouldn't dare go there as an as, as adult church, would we? No. If you want to, speak to Ian. Not, not. <laughs> but there are other ones. We'd like to study the book of Ecclesiastes. What can we learn from the minor prophets? There's a real hunger to get into Scripture, and I can't wait. I can't wait, because they're going to take me out of my comfort zone. Now, I'm like the next man or woman, I'm not massively keen on going out of my comfort zone. Yesterday afternoon, um, yesterday afternoon, I was, um, I could be found at a cookery school, believe it or not. Um, I had a birthday recently, and um, my my darling wife, she is, (laughs) she's great. She thought, what what better thing for Tom to be doing on T20 finals day... (laughs) When Essex are playing at Edgebaston, I know, I'll buy him a cookery lesson. And so I went along, and it was, it was an Indian classics. Now, to be fair, I have always said, I really would love to know how to cook a good curry. And so she, she, she bought this voucher for me. She didn't know if it was going to qualify, and no one would have guessed that. Um, so so I, I went along. It was, it, was, it was really good. But I got there, and I sat in the room with the other people on the course. And I, I was sort of... On, at the end of the line, if you like. Um, and so the lady running the course, who was superb, she said, so um, uh, you've, got, you've got people coming round, and um, they, they're expecting an Indian. 
what do you do? And I said, I'll ring the Rucci. They do free delivery. <laughs> and her face just fell. And she said, what do you cook? And I said, I, 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 I can't cook. I literally, I cannot cook. And then she asked the same questions to people down the line. And I, I, I was very much out of my comfort zone. Other people sort of, oh, I'd knock up a... I couldn't, I can't even tell you what they were called, but it wasn't anything I recognised as Indian food. I felt, I felt stupid. And the reason I'm sharing this with you is so eventually she said to me, can, can, you, can you knock up a basic dough for samosas later? I said, no, to me, dough is not basic. Dough is, dough is the pinnacle of what my career might eventually lead to. And so in the end... Um, while everyone else was, was creating this, this fantastic smelling curry, um, I was actually given the job of chopping up an apple. <laughs> I'm not sure if any apple was required, but <laughs> kind of kept me occupied for a couple of hours, and then I ate some curry. So, But the great thing about youth work is that, to them, they've had it drummed into them. There's no such thing as a stupid question. There's no, there's no time when we're going to turn to them and say, how on earth can you be saying, are you sure Jesus is the son of God? We've been telling you this since you first came here, since your dedication, you should know this by now. We're never, ever, ever going to do that. There is never a question that is too simple and too basic. And sometimes as adults, when we, when we do an alpha course or something like that and we, we come to faith, we make our commitment, we can kind of get this feeling that, that's the point at which there is such a thing as a stupid question. We can make the mistake of thinking that at that point and from that point onwards, we should have the answers. And that if there are questions that we have, maybe we should keep them to ourselves and try and find them um, privately rather than saying in front of our Christian peers, I don't know the answer to this, I'm struggling with it. The passage I'm going to read now features a character who is in that same boat. It's a manservant of a man of God. He finds himself in a situation where he looks around him and despite the fact that he spends all his time in the presence of a man of God, he feels terrified by the world. Let's read the passage and then have a think about the manservant. So I'm going to be reading from 2 Kings, chapter 6, starting from verse 8. 2 Kings, chapter 6, starting from verse 8. Now the king of Aram was at war with Israel. After conferring with his officers, he said, I'll set up my camp in such and such a place. The man of God sent word to the king of Israel, beware of passing that place because the Arameans are going down there. So the king of Israel checked on the place indicated by the man of God. Time and again, Elisha warned the king so that he was on his guard in such places. This enraged the king of Aram. He summoned his officers and demanded of them, Will you not tell me which of us is on the side of the king of Israel? None of us, my lord, said one of his officers. 
But Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the very words you speak, even in your bedroom. Go, find out where he is, the king ordered, so that I can send men and capture him. The report came back, he's in Dothan. Then he sent horses and chariots and a strong force there. They went by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh my Lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who were with them. And Elisha prayed, O Lord, open his eyes so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. As the enemy came down towards him, Elisha prayed to the Lord, strike these people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness, as Elisha had asked. Elisha told them, this is not the road and this is not the city. Follow me, I'll lead you to the man you're looking for. And he led them to Samaria. After they entered the city, Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men so they can see. Then the Lord opened their eyes and they looked and there they were inside Samaria. When the king of Israel saw them, he asked Elisha, Elisha, shall I kill them? Shall I kill them? Do not kill them, he answered. Would you kill men you've captured with your own sword or bow? Set food and water before them so that they may eat and drink and then go back to their master. So he prepared a feast for them. And after they'd finished eating and drinking, he sent them away and they returned to their master. So the bands from Aram stopped raiding Israel's territory. It's so easy to read passages like that and see the reaction of Elisha's manservant and think, obviously, you would have prayed. You're in the Bible. Of course you're going to pray. Of course God's going to do something. But actually, I can identify with this guy, and I'm sure that many of us here today can too, because he's... He's, he's a manservant to Elisha. Now, first of all, um, he, he's, he's got this job fairly recently because his predecessor had served faithfully, Elisha, for, for many, many years until eventually he'd, he'd given into temptation, he'd made a bit of a mistake, and Elisha had not only sacked him but also um, uh, put a, a leprosy on him and future generations of his family. So it's quite a harsh settlement package, I think we'd say. This manservant was fairly new to the job, and he's following Elisha. Now, following Elisha, being Elisha's manservant, going where he goes and following his his orders, it took faith. It took courage. It took 100% commitment. So here we have a situation of war. The king of Aram is at war with Israel. And what he plans to do is he he wants to send raiding parties into Israelite territory. He wants to capture their livestock, capture their wealth, capture their people for slaves. He wants to weaken his enemy bit by bit by sending in these raiding parties. They would go in under the cover of darkness. They would hit a town hard, ruin it, destroy it, take all they could, plunder. 
the wealth and then withdraw before the Israelite army could get there. That's his plan. But he's got a problem. And the problem is this. Every time that he sends a party over the border, the Israelis are ready for them. The Israelite army is there. Because he's only sent a small raiding party rather than a full army to invade, they have to withdraw. They can't plunder. They can't get anything. And so he calls his officers together and says, we've got a spy in the camp. Which one of you is feeding this information to the king of Israel? One of his generals says, it's not us. It's not us. Um, Israelite intelligence have got this, this incredible officer who just knows. He even knows what you talk about in your own bedroom. The, most, the safest of safe places. He knows. But we don't know how. We have no idea how he gets this information, but he does. So the king says, right, fine. One way to deal with this, we're going to get him. Send spies out into into Israel, find out what's going on. Find out where he's going to be. And so word comes back that he's in Dothan, a small, unguarded city. A city without much, in a way, of fortifications. A city that is vulnerable. It's... A short, while, short um, distance away from Samaria, which was a fortified city, but Elisha was vulnerable while he was there. And so this, it's not the full army, but it's a significant force, a sent to capture him. So the manservant is there, and he's got no idea what's going on. He suddenly wakes up one morning, goes out of the city. Maybe he's having a quick stroll. Maybe he's getting water. Who knows? Maybe he's gone to pray. But he looks around and he suddenly sees, he is surrounded. This small, vulnerable town in which he finds himself is surrounded. There are archers, there are horses, there are chariots. And he panics. Well, of course he panics. I would panic, you would panic. Panic is the natural response. Panic is the response that, that, we, that, that comes to us when we look around and all seems to be lost, when there is no hope, there is no escape, we're surrounded, they're armed, we're not, we can't fight our way out of this, we're not fighters, we're outnumbered, we're outgunned, we've got no chance. He says to Elisha, my lord, what should we do? It's like a dad's army moment, isn't it? Don't panic, don't panic! But Elisha says to him, don't be afraid. When we're faced with with these situations where we look around us and we think, I cannot see a way out of this. I cannot see how this is going to work. My firm is facing bankruptcy. My my diagnosis is, 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 my prognosis even, is terminal. My child is suffering. My parents are dying. I can't afford to pay my rent. I'm going to be homeless. I can't find a school place. Whatever it might be, whatever struggles we find ourselves battling, so often we look at our own resources. We look at our own resources and we say, whatever are we going to do? Whatever are we going to do? I cannot see a way out of this situation. I cannot see a way that I'm going to resolve this dispute with my friend or my neighbour. 
I cannot see a way that I'm going to redeem myself in the eyes of my friends after what I said to that person in a moment of stupidity. Whatever am I going to do? Things are hopeless. But Elisha's response is fascinating. You see, Elisha, his first port of call is not to pray about the situation. It's not to pray about the army around him. His first port of call is to look after his manservant. The first thing he does is calm down. Look, it's going to be okay. Don't be afraid. Someone once said to me that the phrase, do not be afraid or, or fear not, is repeated 365 times in scripture. Now, I've never counted. I don't know if that's true. But what I do know is that it's there an awful lot. There is a a, a continuous message throughout the Old Testament and the New that when we're faced with crisis, we should not react with fear and panic. We should react with the sense of God's reassurance and peace that he will get us through it. You're sitting here today. I'm standing here today as evidence that whatever we've been through in life, Whatever challenges we've had to face, God's got us through it. Now, you might sit there and say, yeah, but Tom, I lost my house. Yeah, but that's a material possession. God's not worried about that. God's worried about you. And you're sitting in here today, worshipping him as evidence that God has got you through. Thus far, the Lord has sustained you. Elisha. He comes out with this mad statement. He says, those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Now, we're not given the the population of Dothan. We're not given the number of troops that were sent to take Elisha. But what we do know is that it was enough troops to surround the town. So that would have been a fair number. It wasn't the entire army, but it is actually described as a large force. So this was a significant number of troops We know that the the town of Dothan was not fortified. It wasn't protected. So there may have been a few hundred people living there. There might have been a thousand people living there. But it wasn't a significant force. They weren't going to fight their way out. For Elisha to say, those who are with us are more than those with them. In other words, look, don't worry. We don't even know the manservant's name, but Elisha says to him, listen, don't worry. There's more of us than there is of them. You can imagine the manservant saying, look, look out the window. You're mad. There's not. There simply isn't. Even if you count the, the, the bloke with the dodgy leg and the, the, the woman who's like, can't get out of her house. And even if you count everybody in this town, the children, the dogs, the animals, there is not more of us. We're for it. There's no hope. And Elisha prays this prayer. He prays this prayer, which he just says, Lord, Lord, open his eyes so he might see. So simple. Such a simple prayer. And then we get this glimpse into this spiritual realm. We get this glimpse of this army we're told that the Lord opened the servant's eyes. He looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. There's this 
army in the spiritual realm. It was unseen to the manservant when he reacted in, in, in the earthly way, which let's not knock him, we all would act, react like that probably. But Elisha had such faith in God that Elisha could almost see into this, this spiritual realm. He could almost see this army lining up on the hills behind the, the Aramite force. He could see that they, the Aramites were outnumbered. He knew that God had this in hand. He knew, he knew that his work for God wasn't yet done. And so God was protecting him with this army. And so although in the physical realm it was unseen, he knew it was there and he knew it would work. And the manservant has this this glimpse. It may have just been a second or two, but it was enough for him to be wowed. It was enough for him to be reassured. The Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and he saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. The enemy start closing in. Suddenly, Elisha prays into the situation. He doesn't pray, Lord, release the hounds and send them Send them back from where they came. It's not a, it's not a, a fire and atom sort of prayer. He just says, Lord, uh, blind them. And they come charging in and then it must have stopped. Because suddenly they can't see. And he goes up to the army and he says, the bloke you're looking for is not, not in there. Which was true, he'd come out of the town. Follow me, I'll take you to him. So he leaves this blinded army all the way to the fortified town of Samaria where the king of Israel is with the Israelite troops. And Elisha says, open the gate. And the gatekeeper must have looked and thought, you've got, you've got a fighting force of enemy there. No, open the gate, let us in. All right. So they do, they lead them in. And then we see this great scene where the king says, should we kill him? Should we kill him? And Elisha says, no, no. Feed them. Send them home. So actually the, the result of, of this army, this spiritual army, wasn't mass slaughter and destruction. It wasn't the sort of military victory that you might expect. The result of this was that there wasn't a single drop of blood spilt. The so-called enemy were taken in. We're told, Elisha actually told the king to give them bread and water, but the king went a step further and prepared a feast. Now, eating together in those days, it formed a covenant. Suddenly, they're, they're, they're sharing together. And the enemy gets sent home. And the result of it is, Elisha's act put a stop to the raiding parties from Israel's territory. Wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it be great to be able to glimpse that spiritual realm? Wouldn't it be brilliant to, to go out there and to walk up the high street or through Lake Meadows or wherever you happen to go this afternoon and see somebody? And rather than thinking, oh, I know I, I, know I should really go and tell them about my faith and invite them to Alpha or, or get them along to church, I know I should, but I feel like a real wally. They'll... they'll They'll laugh or they won't be interested. They're going to reject me. It's going to be a waste of time. They might even take offence. Wouldn't it be amazing if you saw that one person 
And you looked up and you saw half a million faces saying, go on, come on, do it, go, 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 come on, you can do this. Don't worry about their response, just do it, go on. And you, there, was this, there was this noise, this groundswell of support and applause as you, as you tentatively stepped before them. And the noise got so loud that you had to raise your voice. And even if, even if the response was, God, <laughs> you're having a laugh, mate, do one. You don't have that crushed sense of failure. Instead, you have rows and rows and rows of people applauding and saying, well done, that was awesome, you did brilliantly. Don't worry, he's walked away. You've done the bit you're called to do. That was fantastic, well done. Wouldn't that be brilliant to get this glimpse into into the spiritual realm? You see, the Bible tells us that that is a reality. There is this spiritual realm around us all the time. And it's very easy to be cynical and, and think, oh, look, I've, I've got this bloke living next door. I'm, yeah, I talk to him every now and then, but he wouldn't be interested in church. How do we know unless we ask? I'm preaching to myself as much as anybody this morning because I struggle with this as much as anybody else does. It's not easy. But if you think about the, these, the, the, the audience, the, the congregation of heaven standing, cheering on, willing you just to say the say the name of Jesus in a conversation, willing you on Monday morning when someone says, how's your weekend, to say, oh, do you know what? Went to church yesterday. It's brilliant. Hopefully you'll say that. (laughs) Wouldn't that be great if you you go in thinking, this is one person in front of me now. But you know what? In the spiritual realm, there's countless, there's countless faces willing me on, cheering me on. I don't know if any of you have ever played sport at a high level, but so often you hear, don't you, in, in post-match interviews, um, athletes or, or, or players, performers, saying the crowd were the 12th man. They, they, were, they were like an extra team member. They gave us so much support. The noise was incredible. We felt so supported. And you hear that so often. It, there must be something in it. It must be true. Do we have faith that that is the case? Do we have faith that everything that we do is done, is witnessed, is done in the presence of a heavenly host, this heavenly army? Do we have faith that that is the reality? Because if we do, I think it probably makes a difference to the way that we conduct ourselves, to the way that we live our lives. Every single thing we do, we've got this, and I know it sounds a bit big brother-like, some people don't like it, but actually, for this manservant, suddenly it took all the fear out of the situation. He was happy to follow Elisha. Suddenly, he had this glimpse into the spiritual realm. You see, Jesus was big on faith, wasn't he? (laughs) Yes, is the answering. Matthew 17, we see Jesus walking on the water. And there's that moment, isn't there, when when Peter gets out of the boat, starts walking towards him. Peter is is walking on water, and then suddenly, "Ah, don't look down. He looks down, and he starts sinking in. And Jesus says, where's your faith? 
Come on, man, where's your faith? Can't you look down? Can't you see there's all those people lifting you up? That's the spiritual realm. Come on, have faith. Later on, he says, I'll tell you the truth. If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. If we, have, if we have true faith, if we can actually buy into this, this fact that, that there is this spiritual realm around us, that we are being witnessed every single thing we do, every word we say, we have got the heavenly host willing us, cheering us on, right there with us. We're told that those chariots of fire were around Elisha as well as around, around the whole town. Right there with us, saying, come on, do it, go for it, it's okay. It's not about their response, it's about your act. It's about your action. So don't be afraid. Do it. Maybe this gives us a a glimpse into into what gave David the courage to face Goliath. This insight into this spiritual realm. David said to Goliath as as he stood there with the Israelite army behind him, this giant of a man over nine feet tall, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. David went went out to that battlefield, having rejected armour, just wearing what he came in, with his slingshot that he used to scare off wild animals normally. But he went there armed with more than that. He went there armed with an absolute faith that God would honour his act that God would not fail him. And guess what? God didn't. Daniel's another one. Daniel could so easily have complied, complied with with the rules that the king had put in place at the time. He could so easily have said, oh, okay, Darius, I'll I'll go easy on the prayer. I'll, I'll, I'll change my diet a bit. He could so easily have done that, but instead he said, no, no, I am not going to. He keeps praying. He keeps the habits that his faith demanded. He is faithful to God. God comes before anybody else. And so when he's put in a lion's den, he is saved. His vision comes a bit later, doesn't it? When he shares the vision in Daniel chapter 7, he says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. God gave Daniel this vision. You have a vision like that, it's going to change your life, isn't it? It's going to change everything about you, the way you act, the way you talk. Every situation you find yourself in, your response is going to be putting first the one that you see in the vision. Finally, we're told, Stephen, Acts chapter 7. He's just, he's preached to the people. They've rejected the message. They're picking up rocks. He knows what's coming. He's no fool. He knows that he lives in a fairly barbaric culture. 
Does he turn and run? No. Does he apologise? No. He stands there. We're told, while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. Is it going too far to say that Stephen's faith kept him there? Stephen's faith stopped him from running or renouncing? His faith, his faith held him firm. They were literally throwing rocks at him and he knew it wasn't going to stop until he was dead. He knew it was going to be bloody and painful. But he knew, he knew that God was using him. You see, all of these people that we've just listed, and there are many, many, many more throughout the Bible, but they don't turn to their own power, their own strength, their own resources. In times of need and times of trouble, they make sure they stay faithful to God. They do not weaken in their faith. They do not cut corners. They don't try and, and find a sort of a, a happy marriage between faith and society. For them, it's black and white. And they fall on the side of God. And therefore, they will not change anything about their faith. They won't sacrifice any part of their faith to please the culture in which they find themselves. And God honours that. You might be sitting there thinking, how can you say God honours that, Tom? Stephen's stoned to death. But Stephen's story has inspired more and more and more people throughout history. So God does honour Stephen. So, our challenge, our challenge throughout all this is to remember this spiritual realm. It's to go from being like the manservant to being like the man of God. To when we're faced with a crisis, go from reacting with, with blind panic and we're doomed. That's dad's army reference. To, we can do this. Don't panic. Let's pray. That's what we need to get to. That is true faith. If we can just bear in mind this, this spiritual realm all around us, those thousands upon thousands of, of heavenly, heavenly faces urging us on, willing us to give it our best, to do our best. Instead of focusing on the rejection we might face from the world, we should go from being like the man of God, sorry, to, from being like the servant of the man of God to being like the man of God. Before we close in prayer, I just want to share a, a story which, um, which happened a few years ago now. When I was down at Christchurch in Stock, used to worship down there. And um, one night we were in a leaders' meeting and we had been told that the, the pub just down the road, it was called the Cock Inn then, um, they had a spiritualist night. And there were these psychics and fortune tellers and people like that. And it was, it was rammed. There were loads of people in there. I think you got a free glass of Prosecco, which in Stock is quite a big draw. Um, and we were sitting there, and it was a, a, a leaders' meeting, and we decided we'd, we'd just stop, and we'd just pray. Because right on our doorstep, there was this very negative, spiritually negative event taking place, and we weren't quite sure what to do with it. And so we, we prayed, and we prayed that God would stop this from happening. And immediately after the prayer, uh, one of the other leaders said, I've had a real uh, vision while we're praying 
I, just, I can just picture the, the pub, and it's just surrounded by people in white. I don't know if it's angelic or what, but just people in white, and they're raising hands, and they've just surrounded the pub. And this person said, I don't know what that means. I don't know if it's of God or if it's just my, my imagination, but I just feel I should share that. I thought, okay. Now, within three months, they'd had a burst pipe, which had caused lots of damage in the pub. The pub shut, and then, I don't know why, but for several years, I think about two and a half years, that pub was shut. And eventually someone bought it, and it's now the Harvard Inn. So there weren't any more spiritualist nights in that place. Now, I believe that that's because we prayed against it. And that's because that person had the faith to share that vision. Rather than sitting there thinking, I feel a bit silly. I feel like the, the wally in the corner chopping the apple when everyone else is making the curry. Rather than feeling like that, they had the confidence to share that vision. Because God doesn't ask us to go and get a PhD in theology before we're good enough for him to use. God simply asks us to be willing to give ourselves to him, to follow him, and then he'll use us. So as a church, let's respond to this passage by by being more confident in identifying the spiritual realm around us, looking for these visions and sharing them when they come, being bold and courageous in the way that we interpret the world around us. And then let's remember that heavenly host is always there, cheering us on in every situation. They never condemn us. They never start booing and shouting, get off. They are always, always supporting you and me. If we live life with that in mind, then we're going to start to make a serious difference for God in our community. Let's pray. Elisha prayed, O Lord, open his eyes so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for your word. We give thanks, Lord, that it's living and active today, that we can, we can go to a story that took place so many years ago and yet we can still find relevance for our life today. Father, we pray that you will bless us by giving us visions, by giving us encouragement as we seek to engage with the spiritual realm, as we seek to to recognise and acknowledge everything that you are doing around us through your heavenly host right now in our lives. Lord, give us faith. Give us such strong faith that we we can throw ourselves into situations and react in a way that pleases you, in a way that honours you, in a way that doesn't simply make our faith look like a, like a token gesture, but instead, instead, Lord, may we live lives so that everybody that comes into contact with us knows that we base our lives on a firm foundation of truth in the living, loving, merciful God. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.